Hello and good morning. My name is Cherry Agarwal and we are here at the London School of Economics in Dr. Kate Maher's office to be precise. We are here to talk about everything international development. But before we hear from Kate, let me briefly share with you the purpose of this podcast. As you would know, the International Women's Day is around the corner. This podcast thus is our attempt to highlight the fantastic work women in the ID department have been doing from delivering lectures, authoring books, and doing groundbreaking research to leading projects that inform and further our understanding of ID. Importantly, this podcast uses a gender lens to see ID from the eyes of female academics. With that said, let me give you Dr. Kate Mahar. Hello Dr. Mahar, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. So far so good. Thank you for making the time for this podcast. Uh with that, I would like to begin by asking you about to give us a snapshot of your journey so far. So if students are looking up to female ideals in the department, how would you say they should go about this career? Um I have to say up front I don't really regard academia as a career. I think it has to be more of a calling, something you do because you feel pulled to do research on a particular issue. And secondly, uh I heard once from somebody that a career path is more like crazy paving and you have to lay it yourself. Okay. And certainly that's been my experience. Um I actually started out in a completely different discipline and I did my undergraduate and masters in philosophy and religious studies. Oh wow. Um then I went off and taught math and English in a village junior secondary school in Botswana and that's what got me interested in development. I came back to um the Institute for Development Studies, the IDS in Brighton, mm-hmm. to do a masters in development studies um and then went off to Nigeria for seven and a half years. Wow. and ended up teaching at the undergraduate level without a PhD um in the Institute for Agricultural Research at Amadubello University mm-hmm. where I got interested in informal economies um so that whole process was what led me ultimately to do a PhD in my late 30s with two small children in Oxford when we happened to move here for family reasons and um I decided to move into academia uh, after that. I want to come back to the challenges that female academics face primarily because of caregiving work and other responsibilities added responsibilities but before we come to that question you've already mentioned that id has to be a calling what would you say keeps you going what has inspired you to continue being in this field um i think a combination of a fascination with the variety of different ways different societies organize economic development and a sense that we need to learn more from each other rather than going about imposing a particular template on everybody else uh and a a strong commitment to social justice. Okay. I don't think that you can be an international development as a a committed researcher if you don't have a deep commitment to social justice. So you've been to various places as you've mentioned. You've taught in different places and you talk about a deeper calling and how you sh- you have to be passionate about social justice. Could you share a defining moment of your career where you felt like this is where i have to be and this is where i have to continue pursuing and pushing 
I think the, the defining moment that got me really interested in the field that I specialize in, uh, I didn't know yet that I was going to go uh, deeper into development studies or into academia at all, was uh, in the middle of my master's research in international development when I was encouraged by my supervisor to go up to a border market uh, in what was then Zaire, is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, between northern Uganda and uh, eastern Zaire. And the activities in that market were an international trade in gold, coffee, dollars, and uh, vegetable uh, farm products. Okay. And it was such a complicated global market in which people listened to the changing price of gold on the BBC and exchanged products so that they were exporting coffee from Sudan, which didn't produce it at the time. So I realized that things that are going on under the surface of what we call development are extremely complex and extremely interesting and that there are many different possible outcomes in development processes that mainstream development doesn't recognize. So we, you spoke a little about your master's project and the work that you were doing. Recently you also co-edited a book with late Abdul Rafu Mustafa and the book is titled Overcoming Boko Haram and looks at the drivers of Islamic extremism in northern Nigeria. Could you tell us a little more about the book, what it is about, what was the purpose of doing this book? Uh, this book was the product of a, a much longer research project by Ralph Mustafa on religious conflict in northern Nigeria that he organized at the University of Oxford and is actually the third book in a, a series looking at Muslim-Muslim conflict, that was the first book, which was called uh, Sects and Social Disorder. Then Muslim-Christian conflict in northern Nigeria, which was called Creed and Grievance. And now this one was looking specifically as, at Islamic extremism uh, and trying to understand not, uh, well, really to shift the focus from a kind of sensationalist interest in the atrocities of Boko Haram to a much deeper investigation of the social, political, and economic processes that led it to emerge where and when it did, because religious conflict in northern Nigeria has been going on for a long, long time, since the, the mid-'80s. It's mm -hmm. been a serious problem. But the rise of extremism took everybody by surprise, and most northern Nigerian Muslims were shocked by it. Mm -hmm. So I think a, a second issue is to try to understand how does religion actually come into this. If most Nigerian Muslims were shocked by it, are peaceful, do not support it, um, what brought it about? What kinds of things led to this eruption of, of terrible violence? And, and to what being sensationalist about it. Yes, at looking at the politics and the economics and the, the sociology of what's going on, but also to understand how many of the people who, are, who tend to be lumped in to dynamics of extremism, um, Muslim youth, uh, poor, uh, sometimes oppressed women, uh, clerics. In northern Nigeria, the majority of Muslim clerics, women, and youth are not proponents of extremism and actually are very important bulwarks against extremism. Mm -hmm. How can policy tap into those social 
processes that can help to resist extremism rather than assuming that because they're Muslims and because they're from there, they are just susceptible to radicalization. So not only keeping away from sensationalism, but also informing our understanding of what are the root causes. Root causes and also the institutional resources within northern Nigerian society to resist and counter radicalization. That sounds incredibly interesting. And just to our listeners, there's a copy of the book available at the LSE library, so go for it. Do give it a read. Uh, Shifting gears, um, Kate, I want to move on to the challenges of being a female academic in this field. Are there any specific gender challenges that you think female academics in ID face when they go out in the field, uh, when they have, let's say, other commitments that that are specific to female academics? I certainly can't speak for all female academics. I think the the range of experience among female academics is probably as great or greater than between female and and male academics. Um, I would certainly say that field work, which is such an essential part of research in international development, field work with small children is uh, one thing that can be very challenging and can shape uh, one's research trajectory in important ways. Uh, In my case, my children were born in Nigeria, so um, field work and small children went together fairly easily for me, and I continued to take them to Nigeria. They are Nigerians and have relatives there, so I, I managed to sort those things out that way. But I would say a second issue. The UK has the most serious gap in promotions of female professors in the whole of the EU. And the pay gap in the UK, the gender pay gap, is extremely high still. Although attention has been paid to it and there have been efforts made, it's still the case that female academics are paid 15% lower than men on average. Um, The LSE has made specific efforts to rectify the pay gap, but they've been through one-off grants, which actually doesn't address the the systems and the disparities that lead to the pay gap, um, but simply the gap itself, which means that it's likely to open up again. So there has to be long-term institutional changes to address this issue? I would say there has to be more attention to what leads to um, mm-hmm. the, the disparity in pay and in promotions. Uh, I think that particularly the evidence shows that the higher a woman moves in academia, the harder it is for her to get promoted for the same level of publications and quality of work. And that's something that needs to be addressed. Would you also say that there's a glass ceiling when it comes to women in ID? And, for example, in the media world, there are certain sections or domains where it is considered that women can cover it. For example, music, entertainment, lifestyle. But when it comes to issues such as defense, it it is considered male-dominated. Would you say that this is a trend that we can see in ID, or how does it look like in the sector? I would say not especially, um we in ID there are a lot of women. Uh, mm-hmm. It is true that the majority of the women are at the lower levels of positions in ID, but we do have some female professors. Um, ID has promoted a few women to professor fairly recently, um, but it is yeah it's the the case that there are more women in ID say than economics. But I think within 
um, particular domains of ID. There are certain female-dominated areas and uh, other that, that are more male-dominated. Um, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, I want you to write this paper f on gender in Africa, and I had to say, I don't work on gender. It's a particular field, and it's not my field. Um, I would be a, a rich woman. Um, so gender, obviously, is heavily dominated by women as a, a, a subfield within ID. Health tends to have a, a lot of women in it. Uh, specific things like microfinance, uh, a lot of women work in that area. But issues like development economics and uh, harder economic issues like perhaps political economy tend to be more male-dominated. Okay. So... So far from our conversation, I've learned that there are, there are several issues within the department. But if you were given the superpower, let's say, that you could change one thing in the sector, what would that one thing be if you could sort of wave a magic wand and solve that? In the sector or in, in the, the department? Sector, in the sector. And we can talk about the department as well. A tough one. Uh, in the sector, I think more focus on the capacity building and the existing capacity for institutional reform and achieving institutional priorities of developing countries themselves. I think there's too much focus on external agendas and not enough focus on internal institutional resources and priorities and how to assist countries to realize their own developmental objectives rather than to push them into something that has been devised externally. Okay, and if you, had, if you could change something within the department, what would you change? I think a greater focus on collaboration in research around issues of collective uh, um, academic interest. I think there are too many too many people who see disciplinary differences as divisions when they actually can be seen as opportunities for greater depth and complexity in the way that we examine one particular issue. I think there's a lot of potential for greater research collaboration in this department, but a very strong tendency for people to just do their own thing, which is great. It yields a lot of interesting research, but I think that we would be stronger working together on core issues of interest. Okay. So just before we close this podcast, I want to ask you for a recommendation. It could be a book, a paper, an academic or practitioners whose work you follow, something that you'd like people to read and know more about. I think I'm going to pick an article and a book. I don't think there's anything that is the kind of quintessential thing that all sh people should read in development, but definitely an article that changed my perspective was an article by Tandikum Kandawire called On Tax Effort and Colonial Heritage in Africa, which offered a really novel perspective on why African informal economies are different among different African countries and really change the way I think about variations in mm -hmm. uh, extent and uh, type of informality. And a book is one that I read recently that I thought was really impressive. It's by Rahman Idrissa, and it's called The Politics of Islam in the Sahel, um, that looks at the history of Islamic relations in West African countries mm -hmm and doesn't start history from the beginning of colonialism, but actually uses 
African history goes back a thousand years into pre-colonial states and the way that Islam was woven very differently into different African societies, which accounts for very different patterns of radicalization and vulnerability to Islamic rad radicalization, uh, with some West African countries being quite resistant to mm -hmm. it and others much more vulnerable. Okay, thank you so much for that. And that brings us neatly to the close of the podcast. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thank you, Kate, so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.